You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Growing up, I hated Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings for most people are sleeping in. Uh, Sunday mornings when you live in the Bible Belt are for waking up early and going to church. Every Sunday, my parents would wake me up, no matter how tired I was, no matter how late I had stayed up playing video games or watching blockbuster movies the Saturday night before with friends. I got woken up about 8 o'clock, had to get ready to go to church and be there by 9. And every Sunday, we went to church. And every Sunday after church, we went out to eat, and we were the first person waiting at whatever restaurant um, for them to open at about 1045. Growing up, church was required. And that's the story for for most people, I think, who grew up in Texas. Um, Church was required. It was was no matter what. It was non-negotiable. Hey, Mom, can I go hang out at Zach's house on Saturday? Yeah, but we're going to be picking you up at about 8.15 for church. (laughs) Um, Growing up, no matter how much I went to church, I never really connected with the pastors. Pastors always seemed uh, too nice, almost seemed too warm, too friendly, and almost seemed inauthentic to me. I, the men in my life were, were tough, rugged, uh, tell you like it is. And, and every pastor I ever met was, oh, hey, how's it going? And it just didn't connect with me. And the older I got, I, I searched in different places and different churches to find people um, who I connected with. And as I got older, what I realized is I was looking for a leader. I was looking for someone who could come in and lead me spiritually, but do it in a way where I still maintain my respect for them as a man. Today, I got to talk to a leader of a church who I respect, a, a church leader who I respect as a spiritual leader and who, has, who I respect as a man. Um, the moment I met Carrie Newhoff, I didn't, it didn't feel the same way I normally feel about pastors. He's nice. He's very friendly, but he's not that, oh, hey, how's it going, soft-spoken pastor that I always knew growing up. Today, our guest is Carrie Newhoff. Carrie is a former lawyer, um, a, the founder and lead pastor of Conexus Church in Canada. And today he's a podcaster, author, and leadership expert for thousands and thousands worldwide. I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation today with Carrie. I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. <laughs> You know what I feel like right now? I feel like if I was talking to Picasso and I said, well, look at some of the sketches I've done. Carrie's sitting here with 19 million downloads on his podcast. And uh, we're we're showing up our studio. Look at this. Look at look at what we're doing. I'm impressed. You should see. I work out of the basement of my house. I really do. And there's something inherently interesting about overhearing a conversation. Like you think about talk radio, right? Sports radio. Yeah. 
It's like a, lot, a whole bunch of people who will, have never and will never play professional sports critiquing people who play professional sports. Why is that interesting? It's a really good question to ask. It's because two people with different opinions or multiple people with different opinions are having a have at it. There is something about that. So I'm, I'm trying to do you know, more than, than just that, but there's something about conversation that is unscripted, real, authentic, and perhaps a little bit unusual, a stand, you know, a deviation from the standard questions. Sure. Why did you write the book? Tell me, how did you get into writing? Now, once in a while, I will ask people, why did you write the book? But that, like, I, I, I write every interview from scratch. I, I do questions, and then on the really good ones, the ones that I think are great, sometimes I don't look at my notes. We just talk for an hour, and it just went down all these really interesting paths that... Nobody expected. Why do any of us listen to sports commentators? I think some of it is the same reason why we listen to comedy, hmm. the same reason we listen to podcasts. It's because I think I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might be able to. Are you to. realizing you can't? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like, you listen to a good, a good comic and it just sounds like they're talking. It does. You, you yeah, they make it sound easy. You know, it's a, a, a opposed to, like, a weightlifter or a you know yeah, boxer who looks that. makes it look difficult. Yeah, a mm-hmm. good comic or a a good pastor makes it look so easy. It's so natural. He's just up there talking. You're like Harry's just, just up there talking about the Bible. I could do. Oh that. yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> that's exactly it. And there's a certain point if you're in the your area of gifting, it is a little bit easier. Now you can get lazy, and I cannot prepare, mm-hmm. right? I, I I went to or, or watched the Forbes thirty. Um, Forbes under 30, 30 under 30, I don't yeah. know, conference a couple weeks ago. And they had um, Alex Cooper on. She hosts a podcast that is uh, definitely not something that any of the three of us listen to. It started out as like a sex podcast for young women. Okay. And okay. it got really popular. It's the okay. number one podcast, I think, number one, if not, it's top three really? in wow. the podcast space. Okay. She got a deal on Spotify for like $60 million or something. <laughs> so her and Joe Rogan have the Spotify money. Okay. Anyway, I, I was like, all right, you know, I didn't want to listen to it. And then I thought, okay, there's got to be you something. Felt compelled. I can learn. I got to be able to learn something, <laughs> right? right? Okay. So I listened to it. And she talked about how she goes in and that's her full time job. She does still all the editing. Okay. So she records it and she goes, goes back through and sometimes will re record her side of the interview. Oh, my. Is that not, that's so much work. At 60 million, I think I would hire someone to do that. (laughs) I don't know. Well, her position was, this is what got me here. I'm going to keep doing it. I know that when I asked that question, it came off a little bit, not quite the way that I wanted to. So I'm going to, or the audio wasn't perfect. And she re-records it. Oh, that's really dedicated. Good for her. Amazing. I don't have a $60 million deal. I can tell you that. Yeah. I I like that you're telling yourself that you listen to that to get better as a podcaster rather than because of sex and young women. (laughs) (laughs) I like that that's the lie you tell yourself. There wasn't a whole lot of tips on that end of it. (laughs) the Forbes conference. (laughs) Oh, wow. When I started my podcast, uh, I was still full-time in church leadership. I also realized how much work it was, and I thought, what is a unique contribution I can bring to this show? Mm-hmm. And it's basically my friendship slash relationship and my curiosity. So from episode one, even when I didn't have a financial model, we had a little bit of money saved up in the bank, and a partner who helped us at the time, uh, I hired a technical producer, 
And um, I also had some people to help with the admin. And so it's like, if I can focus on the interview and the quality of the product, they can handle all the editing. But maybe that's why I don't have a $60 million deal. Well, I, I mean, I think, I think you're on the right track. I think if you can focus on the content development and the creativity side, the interaction, mm -hmm. all of that, uh, I, I think if you shift over and then are trying to do all the other stuff associated with it, the, you know, whether it's the, the finance and the marketing and the monetization of it, you're going to get bogged down. You're, you're going to be shifting your brain too frequently to be good yeah. at either. I mean, so I think, you know, staying in that lane, probably, obviously, it, <laughs> am I telling you? obviously it helped. Obviously, yeah, it's not bad. It's not terrible. No, and, and also that gets into your gifting too, right? Your lane. Like you look at this weird career I've had in radio and law and ministry and now author, speaker, podcaster. What is the single thread that runs through all of that? Communication. All of it. My favorite part of law was being in court, even though it was short, um, the, the career there. And then in ministry, my favorite part was casting vision and preaching. And now what do I do? Well, I talk for a living and I write for a living, think for a living, that kind of thing. And, and, and that's, that's sort of, I think, the way I was created. And as long as I stick to my sweet spot, things seem to be okay. As soon as I get out of it, the, the wheels come off the bus pretty fast. Well, one of, the, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about when, is this sort of unique overlay of, of, of career background from a, as a pastor and then moving yeah. into podcasting. And as a, as a pastor, there's, it's really all about belief systems, but I think it boils down to what we talk about on this podcast, which is decision-making. Mm -hmm. And if you can create frameworks that help you to make better, more whether it's more biblically aligned, more ethical, more morally aligned decisions, then you're going to get closer to that, that religion that you're trying to, to focus on. You're going to get closer to, uh, to God. When you think about how decision-making lays over with your work as a, as a pastor, do you, yeah. do you see that correlation there that I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. what, what advice would you have as it relates to decision-making from, from, that, from that lens? Well, I think the good news is, you know, for me as a person of faith, the scripture is, the Christian scriptures are sort of my baseline that hopefully everything in my life flows out of as a, as a pastor, as a, just a, a Christ follower. That would be something that's really important to me personally. But as anybody who's read the Bible knows, that leaves a lot of interpretation <laughs> open, right? Because you read a verse and you think it means this and I think it means that and you choose this and I choose that. So I think when it comes to decision-making, there's a few things. One is I've become a much bigger fan of what, what I call wise counsel. So that is other people of faith or, or just people that I really trust to hear the voice of God who know me. And I'm like, the older I get, the less I trust myself. So the more I'm like, okay, well, what do you think, Sanger? What do you think, Sean? we'll have that conversation together and then I'll be like, okay, because sometimes, you know, scripture isn't all that clear. And then in decision-making, you know, I've got the personality where I usually trust my gut, but sometimes it gets me into trouble. So having the people around me to really help me understand, okay, what am I missing? What am I not seeing? Mm -hmm. That really helps me make better decisions over time. Yeah, no, I, I think that's... I, we, and Sanger, you and I were talking about this just the other day, is that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time around. Yeah. 
and I think those people really weigh on how you're making decisions. Mm. Not just yeah, good or bad, because you, you hang out with me all the time. I'm trying to help you make better decisions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you've lined up five fools, you know, your life is probably not heading in a very good direction. But, but if you've got some really wise people and you go, hey, when I look at her life, when I look at his life, these are people that I want to emulate. If you can get them speaking into your decision making, that's fantastic. Sure. The, um, the interesting thing about your life, you know, going from discipline to discipline to discipline, there, there's a lot of decisions that you had to make, you know, whether it be career shift or not. What, what was the most important decision that you can key in on? Probably leaving... I'm going to give you two. You can narrow me to one and pick. Leaving law to go into ministry or uh, the succession that we executed six years ago at our church after I had led it for 20 years and at the age of 50 decided to hand it over to a successor. I'm fascinated by that. We the succession? Yeah. So that was a big thing. I mean, when I started out, first of all, I had no experience in ministry, grew up in the church, grew up in a Christian home, became a Christian myself in my teenage years, rededicated my life to Christ in my early 20s, but like I was going to be a lawyer. So, you know, in the middle of law school, had this epiphany. It's like, oh, what about ministry? Anyway, ended up in seminary, but thought I do not have the gifts for ministry. I just don't. I'm a leader. Like I'm not, okay, I'm not a pastor. Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, you built a very large church. Yeah. You mean what do you mean you don't have the gift of ministry? Well, I, I mean the pastors that I saw were kind of pastoral, clergy, holding the hands of the dying kind of, you know, empathetic warm people and that's not I'm a lawyer. Like yeah. you know, I don't have a heart. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like come on. I'll tear out your jugular in court and leave me alone. So I'm like clearly I'm not a pastor. But I went to these three little churches when I was halfway through seminary just to try it out because I thought, well, maybe I'll be a professor. Okay, I'll, I'll be faithful to God, be a professor, teach homiletics, preaching. But um, no, I went to these three little churches and kind of fell in love with the people and ended up spending, well, I'm still there 25 years later with these people. And so they called me up as a student, which means I did full-time work for half-time pay, and uh, then when I graduated, they called me as their pastor. And so those are the people that I led for two decades. And you always want to grow your church and you think, oh, this is going to be amazing. But then it actually grew. And we grew from like 30, 40 people adding all three churches that I would do the circuit on together mm -hmm. to 1,500 pre-COVID. And, you know, probably three or 4,000 people who called our church home. So all of a sudden you're leading this really big thing that you don't think you have the gifts for. But clearly, you know, something was working. And then I'm, and it's in the middle of nowhere. Like people, when they come up and see where I live, they're like, I know you say you live in the middle of nowhere, but like there's actually no people around here. I'm like, no, I live in the middle of nowhere. Like we're an hour north of Toronto. And uh, it was this little country community where I still live. So God did an incredible work. And I thought, now my job is not to screw it up. And I had seen a lot of leaders hit their 50s. And so I'm processing this when I'm in my 40s. And they hit cruise control. And as a young leader, I hated that. It's like, you know, you're just waiting to collect some pension check one day. You stopped leading when you were 42. You're 56 now. I have no respect for you. This is what I'm thinking as a young leader. But in my late 40s, I began to notice my passion for certain things about day-to-day -day ministry was waning. 
I wasn't as excited about being in the meetings. I didn't have as clear a sense of the future. And then all of a sudden the radar goes off and I'm like, uh-oh, this is, this is how you end up in cruise control in your 50s. Yeah. I don't want to have that happen. And then succession is usually handled so poorly in the church um, and in business, frankly. I think like the majority of businesses die with their founder, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like never found a successor. I guess I'm just going to shut it down when I'm done or when I die, one of the two. And I didn't want that to happen because it's the church. You can't screw up the church. Like, you know, so I, I, was, I was obsessed by that. And I had a guy who was a decade younger than me. And I thought, I can probably do this for three to five more years. But if I was Jeff, I was turning 50. He was turning 40 that year. I thought, I'm not going to hang around for five years to figure out what this guy does. Like, if he doesn't give me the church, I'm going to go. So summer 2015, prayed a lot, consulted mentor after mentor, met with our board numerous times, and came to the conclusion at the end of the summer that I was going to step back as the senior pastor, which was a really big, like, risk because... It was a risk for me. Like, once you give up that job, you don't get it back. You can't go back a week later and go, you know what? I had a bad day. Jay Leno with pastors. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, just kidding. <laughs> I'm back. Right. I'm back. I'm back. I left. You I'm actually back. aren't good at this. I don't want to. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> no, you're 100% right. And so, as a matter of faith, and I didn't really have my next decade mapped out. I thought, well, I've got, you know, books and speaking, so maybe I can do some of that. One of the things that I, I look at is I, is I see people making changes that are more substantial. Yeah. And, and some of the things that hold people back, right? You've got to change if you're, if you're moving from, let's say one plateau to the next plateau, changing things like your goals, your systems, your, your, your habits, your relationships. But You've, you also have to, and I, and I actually figured out these four things. And my dad is a psychologist, and I told him this, this is what I think, that you know, for people to change, they've got to change their goals, their systems, their, their habits, their relationships. And he goes, you're missing one. I said, what is it? He goes, they've, they've got to change their beliefs also. And, and okay, so now it's five. So I started thinking about that, and I'm like, well, how does someone change their beliefs if, if their beliefs are holding them back? Right. How do you how do you recognize what that is? But I would think as a pastor, that's your job. Right. It is, right. is how do you change people's beliefs or, or help them recognize what those beliefs are or mm -hmm. correct those beliefs? How do you get somebody to change their beliefs? Wow. Yeah, that was a big challenge. Well, one of the ways that uh, it's funny, Adam Grant and I had a conversation about this when I was preaching. Uh, about my preaching when he was on my podcast. And it went in a really different direction than either of us thought the interview would go, but it was a lot of fun. So one of the mistakes I think a lot of preachers make is they just talk at you thinking that I am going to change your mind. So here's my five points. This is why you're wrong. This is why you're wrong. This is why I'm right or the Bible is right. Almost everybody gets very defensive about that. So what I always tried to do, and we had predominantly unchurched people coming to our church. The majority of the growth came from people who didn't have a church background. So it wasn't just sheep shuffle. Yeah, you know, what you often get in churches. So it was something like when I was leading, 55% self-identified as having no church background, regular pattern of church attendance, which was really fascinating. So they're coming in, because Canada's more post-Christian than the U.S. They're coming in with like 
you know, there were a few atheists. We definitely got some atheists, but a lot of people were like, oh yeah, I believe in God, but they, they didn't have a biblical faith. Like it wasn't, post-Christian means that, and I think America is in a post-Christian moment right now. Um, but if you look at what happened to Europe, it's super clear in Europe. Europe was the cradle of the Reformation, and then the Enlightenment happened, and then higher criticism in the 19th century. And by the mid-20th century, churches are in decline. You go to Europe, and basically they're tourist sites now of what used to be. And you go there Sunday morning if they still have services, and there's like 20 women in their 90s gathering for Mass. That's what the church was. And the culture has moved on. They've learned how to live without God. They're post-Christian. Canada, that started to slide in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So I grew up in a pretty post-Christian culture. And it's a difference between Texas and Portland, Oregon, yeah. right? Yeah. You go to Portland, Oregon, you're like, is this even America? Or, or what happened in New England? Where New England, the, the birth of, um, you know, the, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, revival, Jonathan Edwards, all that stuff. Um, New England's pretty much a spiritual ghost town in most communities these days. Really? So post-Christian would be, we used to be Christian, but we're not anymore. Okay. So a lot of the Christian memory lives, like people would say, well, you can't take a life, or you, um, you need to be kind to your neighbor. The morals live, but they're not animated by an active faith. So therefore, people would say, number one argument I would hear is, well, I'm a good person, I don't need God. I'm sure if there is you know, eternity, I'm, I'm gonna be just fine. So one was to respect the worldviews of the people that you're ministering to. Assume that they're intelligent. Assume that um, you know, you're not dumb because you believe what you believe. But then in my preaching, what I would do is try to show the logical conclusion. Well, you know, if you think you're a really good person, what happens with that when you die? Well, first of all, you might be right. Maybe that's exactly how it works. However, we got some scriptures that say that's not how it works. And if you really play that out, well, how good? Like Andy Stanley wrote a book years ago, how good is good enough? So like good compared to the guy in prison who murdered eight people, most of us are pretty good. Good compared to Mother Teresa. Good compared to um, your grandmother who never said a bad word about anybody. Uh, you know, a lot of us have skeletons in our closet that we're not very proud of. So how do we grade on this? Well, you know, okay, well, isn't the whole idea that you have to believe in Jesus like super exclusive and, you know, only Jesus, you know, that's so, so exclusive. It's so Philistine. It's so, you know, what a horrible idea. It's like, well, wait a minute. If he actually paid the price and we're all included and all we have to do is come to the realization that he is the way, the truth, and the life, like, isn't that a lot easier than works? Isn't that a lot easier than I got to keep this up? Or let's say you have a really good life, and then all of a sudden you blow it. You make a really bad decision. You destroy your marriage. You, you, you hurt somebody. You betray a friend. Well, does that cancel all the good works you've done? Like, how does that work? You make people think through, because most people are three questions away from their worldview collapsing. If you, well, you guys know a lot more about investments than I do. You I, I hope. Well, you, <laughs> I guess we're going to find out. I guess we're going to find out, aren't we? I better hope. But yeah. if you start asking me, Kerry, why are you still at your age weighted in equities a little bit heavy? Uh, I'd be like, well, I don't know. I'd like I to make money. It's like, you know, if I really want to embarrass someone, I can. 
three questions away. Yeah. If I really want to expose someone's, because you if know, you do it wrong, you but you can logic box somebody and it can well, have the opposite saying, effect. I'm not you're really going to piss them off if you logic yeah, box. But I'm not somebody. saying logic box somebody and piss them off. I'm saying I, I hear what you're saying because sometimes yeah. people come in and they've got a point of view about why they're doing something, and I can very quickly and how harshly I do it depends on the the mood I'm in and how rude they were when they presented it to me. Well, that's a younger me versus me today. Younger me would have seen it as a sport to dismantle your argument. I would do it all the time. It it felt good right as I thought about doing it. As I was doing it, I realized this is not, I should not be doing this. And then I just felt horrible because it never went the way I thought it would. So let me give you a story from years ago. I was in law school still. I was interning at a, um, a, a chaplaincy in the financial district of downtown Toronto. And there was a board at the time. And the board was not very effective. It was not very effective. And the executive director was not making great decisions in the moment. And I was getting frustrated. And a buddy of mine who was a year ahead of me in law who was on the board as a junior lawyer. And I said to him, his name is Bruce one day. I said, hey, Bruce, like... <sighs> Why do, why do we put up with all this? And why don't you go into the board and really tell them, you know, what you think? And I remember he looked at me and he said, Carrie, you and I went to law school. We can destroy these people if we want to. Why would we do that? And I'm like, oh, that's a really good point. And so the key is, because if you insult changing beliefs, back to your question, Sean, if I insult my congregation and I insult their dignity, the, the skeptic is going to walk out the door and never come back. Right. If I can make him feel like I am his friend and I'm helping him see that, oh, that, lead, that road disintegrates. Like the whole like I'm a good person thing, yeah. that really doesn't work. And all I have to do is make him go home and lie awake one night and go, crap, I guess that's not it. Okay, so what is it? Then all of a sudden they're open to the truth. And okay, so we're all included, we're all accepted, we're all forgiven because of what Jesus did on a cross 2,000 years ago. Okay, maybe I'm not convinced, but I think I want to know more. And then you start to, you start to, because you look at what, you know, the political dialogue has happened in this country and in my country to a large extent. It's all polls. It's people at the polls yelling at each other. Polls as in, you know, extreme, extremities, the polarization. They're, They're screaming at each other. There is no dialogue. The only reason, you know, Lyndon Johnson got the great society ushered in was because Democrats and Republicans worked together to end discrimination or try to end discrimination in the 1960s. The reason you get through crises is because people on the opposite side of the aisle, they, they work together on stuff. And so I think what, where there's a great opportunity with beliefs right now is civil discourse that actually honors that you, you set up not the straw person of your opponent's view, but you say, you're really smart. Smart people believe this. However, perhaps there's a problem with that line of thinking, and I want to pursue that. And then you kind of say, and what do you think? And they go, oh, yeah, the emperor has no clothes on that one, does he? Okay. I guess I'm open to thinking again. Well, I, you know, I, I think the dialogue is important, it, but it, it seems like, it, in the case that you just brought up around the polarization, around political viewpoints, that those have become so polarized that it's, it's like trying to convince a Philadelphia Eagles fan to become a Cowboys fan. Right? The, the facts aren't going to change. They're just, this is just what they 
believe. Right? Right. They're, they're not going to change. So it's got to be really challenging to, uh, but I, I think the key, I like what you said around just the listening and the open dialogue. Uh, we had Eric Maddox on the on the podcast a while back who uh, was an interrogator who found Saddam Hussein. Oh, wow. and, and it was a fascinating story. But what he, what he talked about was setting aside a lot of your your own agenda, if I'm trying to get you to do something, setting that aside so that you can really just listen to what the person is saying, asking the right questions, like you were saying, saying you're just continuing to ask questions to get them to understand. And maybe somebody is really three questions away from adjusting their belief system. Yeah, I think that we found that generally speaking, people were way more open than you would assume. And what they're open to is someone who treats them as intelligent, someone who treats them as thoughtful, not somebody who thinks they're stupid. Because if I suspect you think I'm stupid, there's so many emotions going on inside me. So I come to you and let's say, you know, I have debt and I go to a wealth management firm. (laughs) They're like, well, you kind of need wealth to show up here. I can leave embarrassed. I can leave ashamed. I can leave humiliated. But if you see the image of God in me, And if you treat me like I have dignity, maybe I come back five years later and I've got a million dollars net worth and I'm like, can we have another conversation? I'm never coming back to you if you made me feel ashamed. Well, you may even harden your position. As illogical as it may be, you'll just say, well, this is what I believe. Screw this guy. In some way, I think that the post-Christian development of the Western world is a, a positive thing in the long-term adherence of society to Christianity. I think a lot of people, this is just my opinion, you you are the expert here. An expert so is someone seems, who is not from your town. So yeah, I guess I am the expert. Yeah. What, what it seems like a lot of people, um, a lot of the reason why different areas move past Christianity what I'm guessing is that it was forced upon a lot of people. Because at some point, you didn't have a choice but to be Christian. Mm -hmm. And so you describing the difference between Texas and Portland today and describing how Canada was when you grew up, it made me kind of notice that juxtaposition of those two worlds within within Fort Worth, Texas as I was growing up. Because if I had told someone, if someone kind of got a whiff that I was from a Christian background, they treated me differently and asked me different questions hmm. because I was in their club, right. right? And then if I'm, but if I'm talking to you outside of that context, you don't ask, the, the questions are not the same. So a lot of times I, you know, maybe somebody would find out, I went to a Christian private school for a little while in high school. Um, oh, well, what, then what church do you go to? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the follow-up question. And I know we're on, you know, we're on team Christian here. We're both in the community together. We know the same people. If that doesn't come up, then asking me what church I went to is not a normal question. I go to college. I noticed all the kids from the small towns asked me what church I went to, regardless of whether or not they knew that I was a Christian. So they, they didn't was, ask you if you went to church. They, they asked you what, what church, church I went to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What church do you go to? Yeah. That's a very normal question to ask when you first meet someone, depending on where you are in Texas. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> that would never come up. Even even when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, yeah. like you kind of knew there were three of you maybe in your school who went yeah. to church. Wow. Yeah. It was so small. It's, it's just a very, very different environment. And I, I think that a lot of people, you know, they go, man, I grew up 
grandma always said I had to go to church. And if I didn't go to church, I was going to hell. And, you know, just, ah, I'm going to reject that. And then enough of those people exist to where they can have a community. Mm-hmm. They can exist without being the black sheep and say, yeah, you know what? I'm not the oddball by not going to church anymore. So it's a lot more comfortable for me to reject it. I agree with that. And I think it could go even another layer in where the beliefs that you had, if this was not something that lived inside you, the beliefs that you had growing up just don't stand up to the real world because, you know, you hear things like, well, God won't allow you to suffer if you're a Christian, and then you start suffering. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Well, first of all, that's not biblical. Secondly, um, God will allow you to suffer. I mean, the whole Christian story is about suffering if you really want to look at it. But if you don't believe it is, and then, you know, your mom dies of cancer and she prayed every day, you're like, well, now I'm an atheist. I don't trust God. And so a lot of those worldviews that people have, the belief systems they have, would be based on things that actually weren't true. There's a, a, yeah. a preacher in the mid-20th century named David Buttrick who said something to the effect of, show me the God that you don't believe in, because chances are I don't believe in him either. There's so many misconceptions about the Christian faith among people who grew up in the church that it's like, yeah, actually, if you look at authentic biblical Christianity, nobody believed that. It just it was a myth that kind of grew up. And yeah, let's talk about the God of suffering. Let's talk about why Christians suffer. Let's talk about how, you know, God is with the poor. Like, we're, we're, we don't have those dialogues enough in a Christian no. culture. No, and I think in a predominantly Christian culture, there's so much of the, the logic that you don't have to bring up because, ah, oh, we're all on the same page. You know, yeah. we all, you yeah, know, yeah. I don't have to, I don't have to kind of convince you, so to speak, that this is, that, that I don't have to string everything together precisely. Whereas if I'm talking to a skeptic, like, all right, you got to be on your P's and Q's because they're a skeptic. Yeah, no, nobody questions anything often in a church bubble until someone questions it, and then the whole bubble pops and everything falls apart. Or you're like, we don't ask questions like that around here, right? Or uh, just have faith. You know, there's that, that in the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, there's that line, I think it's in Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, where Steve had a question for his pastor when he grew up. And he said, oh, just have faith. And Jobs thought, I need a better answer than that. And went on this quest that led him to India, that led him to all these other things. But the church basically wouldn't take intelligent questions and suffered as a result of that. Huh. Well, I guess the optimist viewpoint would be if if the post-Christian, if success for the church in the post-Christian world means you have to, you can no longer insult those people that ask those questions. Yeah. You have to approach it in the way that you did to say, I'm going to respect your dignity. You, you know, I can't castigate you as a minority and say, oh, you're one of those non-believers. You know? yeah, yeah. I can't just push you over to the corner. I have to address you because you're the majority now. And that, I, I think, would hopefully would build more long-term real faith than a culture of 100 years ago where you believed because if you didn't, you were... Right. Well, the good news. Yeah. Well, it's more authentic faith then, I would guess. You know, under that free choice. Well, the good news is some of the cornerstones of the Christian faith for centuries, millennia, have been humility, love, service, grace. Those have never gone out of style. You meet an unchurched person in humility. You serve them. You love them. You're kind to them. That actually is incredibly persuasive to a non-believing person. 
And eventually, you know, it's what it says in the New Testament, they may ask you for the reason, why are you like that? And you get to talk to them about Jesus. Like, that's really cool. What are your top three tips for defeating bad decision-making? All right. You guys ask great questions. So um, here's one that, that really has helped me, particularly as things have grown in the online world with my podcasting and my website and that kind of thing, because we get we were talking about this on the car on the way over here, just bombarded by inbound. Like, you know, one and a half to two million people access or uh, – leaders access my content, I want to be accurate with this, one and a half to two million times a month. So that's just generates a ton of emails and inbound and requests and that kind of thing. So uh, first thing for bad decision making is, is embrace categorical decisions. So categorical decision making is something I stumbled on a little too late, but maybe last five to 10 years. Uh, a very famous example of this, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, wear the same thing every day. Why did Steve Jobs wear a black turtleneck and khakis? Why does Zuck wear a T-shirt every day? And the answer isn't because they don't have any money to go shopping. Decision fatigue is real. And if I don't have to worry about, oh, did I wear this last time? Or, oh, this hasn't back from, back from the dry cleaners yet. It was one less decision they had to make. So then they can make a decision about the metaverse. or they can make a decision about, you know, why the iPhone should it have a keyboard or not have a keyboard categorical decision-making. So one of the things I used to do a lot of was breakfast meetings. And I realized that I'm really a morning person, and some of the most important thing I can do is write or develop content. And I am way better at developing content in the morning than I am in the afternoon or in the evening. I'm just tired by that time. So uh, I canceled all my breakfast meetings and started writing in the morning, and my productivity shot through the roof. So an easy thing for me is you ask Carrie, are you free for a breakfast meeting next next Wednesday? It's like, I've already made that decision. You just don't do it. I don't yeah. do it. Now, maybe I'll meet you for coffee, lunch, dinner, you know, sometime when I'm out of my, my what I call green zone, your prime time. Mm-hmm. So we can we can have it some other time. So that's categorical decision making. You can make... Did you find that it was hard to stick to that? Yes, very hard. Right. And uh, there's no real reason other than you chose to set it up that way. <laughs> yeah. But all of He's you... just being a jerk. He doesn't want yeah. to... I am a jerk. not have breakfast. Well, then I just say, yeah, I used to be a lawyer, right? Yeah. I'm, uh, of course I'm a jerk. Uh, I'm kidding. I have lots of lawyer friends, and I'm married to one yeah. who is not a jerk. So, uh, but yeah, you know, you you do. But all that... You guys know this. Like, watch, watch for this in your top clients. They have all made categorical decisions. Um... We, we talked about that at lunch a little bit because we had the privilege of having lunch together, right? Like you have categories, Sanger, in your life where you're like, I'm not spending money and others where you don't mind spending money. So what's a category where you've decided I'm not spending any money on this? Oh, man. Uh, I Cars. Cars, <laughs> yes, okay. Earlier. Cars don't matter to you. <laughs> how, about, how about the dollar a month you talked about? Oh, yeah. So the um, – I yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I, I can't spend a dollar a month to get the cloud, extra Apple cloud storage. It's a dollar a month. It's one dollar. No, yeah, that it's it's silly. Spotify is ten times that. So um, you'll pay for Spotify, but not gladly. That. I don't I'll pay for storage. A, I'll buy a brand new road bike, and you know that'll be six grand. That's fine. One dollar a month, far too much for, for. See, but what that is, it's thinking in categories, right? Yeah. So, for example, when you guys ask me to come and speak to your group. Uh, one of the reasons I said yes was it was leaders and it was entrepreneurs. So those were two decisions we had made a long time ago that if I have a chance and it works out on my calendar, I am free. 
where I can speak to entrepreneurs who are leaders, I would say yes. So it made it very easy say yes. On the other hand, if it had been, you know, a general audience, like, I'll give you another example. Okay, this is like, again, heresy if you're a pastor. I generally don't do weddings. Now, how can you be a pastor of a large church and say you don't do weddings, right? That seems totally counterintuitive. Well, weddings almost always happen on the weekend. I've got to preach the next day. Um, My kids are in school five days a week when they were younger. So you're telling me I got to cash out on every Saturday with my family, 40 Sundays, 40 Saturdays a year. Like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to pay that price. There are other people who will marry you. I had friends who loved doing weddings. Some of them loved the money they got making <laughs> doing weddings. Some of them just love doing weddings because they see it as ministry. So I just decided I'm not doing weddings. And people said, to your point, Sean, well, that's not fair. And you're just a jerk. I'm like, and then I would have exceptions. The exceptions were if you worked for me, if you were on my staff, or if you were part of my family. So if you want to become my assistant, I'll do your wedding. But right now I only have one assistant and I married her. So I didn't marry her. I got her married, right? It's done. Yeah. 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 It's done already. So that, that's taken care of. And if you're my niece, uh, you know, sure, I'll do your wedding. And so you have exceptions like that and, and healthy people understand those boundaries. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, so I would say categorical decision-making and what that does, because leadership is decisions. If you've made 10 of them already and you're like, well, this is what I wear every day or this is, you know, I don't do breakfast meetings or I don't do weddings or I don't do this or I don't make these kinds of investments, then like maybe you're never going to buy crypto. I don't know. I'm not saying that's a good idea. That might be a terrible idea. You should buy crypto. But I'm just saying you just make decisions. I don't do that. And that really, really helps. So that's one thing. Another is uh, avoid making critical decisions when you're tired. So in my last book, At Your Best, I divided, encouraged leaders to divide their day into green, yellow, and red zones. Green, your energy's at its peak. Red, you're exhausted. Give me another Red Bull or give me another coffee. I got to stay awake. Or yellow is everything in between. And my red zone is between four and six in the afternoon. So usually I take a nap or whatever. Um, I used to make decisions and they were almost always bad decisions because I'm tired, I'm exhausted. I would say to my team, I feel like I have three brain cells left. And they're like, well, what, okay, we got this request for next Tuesday. What, yeah, what but should we say? I need you to make, but need you to make this decision. <laughs> and then often I go back the next day and I'm like, well, who made that stupid decision? And they're like, you did. And I made it at four o'clock. Well, when you're that tired, just don't make decisions. Um, just say, I'll do that one tomorrow when I'm feeling better. So avoid the red zone for decision making. And then we already touched on this one, but get wise counsel. The older I get, the longer I lead, the more I rely on the wisdom of others, not just my own wisdom. I love that. I love the the idea of categorical decisions. You know, I, I, as you were describing it, I noticed there were a few things that I started to do, but it wasn't purposeful. So I, I'm wearing a blue jacket, a white shirt, and khaki pants, which is pretty much what I wear every day. You, you got... you. Wear the same thing, Sean. I don't know what the jeans are doing today. You're just feeling a little uh, loose, but he's wearing khakis just <laughs> normally. Well, we got well like you're right. 95 percent of the day, I'm wearing a blue blazer, white shirt, and khakis. We got the same uniform. Well, guess what I'm wearing tonight? I'm wearing a white uh, a white shirt and a blue suit, but no khakis. I, I actually brought my suit pants. There you go. But it, it makes it easier to shop, right? It does. If I know I need new clothes, I just got some new jackets and shirts the other day. I was like, okay, well, I'm just. One category, do they fit or not? You know, <laughs> Does it fit me as a 38 regular jacket or not? That made it easier. But um, the meetings, you know, I do the opposite. No, I'm not meeting a, a client that 
with a start time later than 4.30. Because mm. I noticed that there was no logical end to that. Oh, wow. Right? There wasn't, if I, if I don't cut it off, then if I can meet you at 6, why can't I do 6.30 next time? I, I why had can't that, I do 7.30? I had that years ago. Uh, I used to populate my Saturdays, and I would have several client meetings on, on Saturdays. I found that they had a higher cancellation ratio uh, by far. Uh, I, and I found that I was having to give up time with family that was critical. That's when all the soccer games were. That's when, I, you know, all the, all the kids stuff. And so I scaled it back to every other Saturday. And everybody was fine with it. And there were some people that, oh, we can only meet on Saturday because he works and I work and we've got this. And we can only meet on Saturday. And I scaled it back to two Saturdays a a month. Then I scaled it back to one Saturday a quarter, and it still was fine. And then I just dropped it all together. And guess what? Everything was fine. Yeah, it turns <laughs> out those people could meet on Turns Wednesday. out when they <laughs> wow. needed to come in and, and talk about their financial future and their investments, they could find the time. And what I also realized is that if, they, if it wasn't that important to them, then it wasn't going to be that important to me either. You know, I can't have it be more important to me than it was to them. And so if they weren't willing to sacrifice a couple times a year to come in and talk to their financial advisor, then I needed to get them with a different relationship. And so it was really, I didn't know I was making categorical decisions at the time, but that's, that's, I guess that's what I was doing. Isn't that great? Don't yeah. you wish you had made that decision when your kids were in diapers? I, w I wish I had started yeah. doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I had a very good friend, of, this took me a while too. I had a good friend of mine who stopped, as you were saying, Sanger, stopped taking his last meetings at four. So that he was done at about 5, 5.30, and then he was out. And I'm like, how's he getting it all done? Well, he just was. He was just he making it. it. Yeah. Work expands to the time available to do it. Oh, yeah. Plain I, and simple. I, if I you have, if you have a month to do a project, it'll take you a month. If so you have I, a week, you'll get it done in a week. The, the, the craziest one uh, that I know of that I've heard <laughs> was uh, my jujitsu instructor who owns his own gym, doesn't have a key to his own business, doesn't own one. I asked him one day, I said, hey, can I come in? I want to film like a video. Um, you know, I was doing this kind of cool video for the company and I wanted to put, get some B-roll for jujitsu and I wanted to use his gym. He goes, yeah, you can do it on Sunday. I go, cool. So like, you're not going to be here, but how do I, can I borrow your key? He goes, oh, I don't know. Ask around. I don't have a key. I said, what do you mean you don't have a key? He goes, I don't want a key. <laughs> I go, it's your business. What do you mean you don't have a key? He goes, if I have a key, then I got to show up. If I have a key, then I have to lock up. He goes, it's not my problem anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes he'll, 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 you'll see him, he'll leave. And, you know, that's, that's the employee's responsibility to make sure that he is not the last one in the gym. Wow. Because if he's the last one in the gym, he cannot lock up. <laughs> so that's here's a, a couple decision. Here's a couple of other suggestions to your audience. And everybody's field is different. So remember, I'm a content creator. And, and my like, ability to do deep work and to focus and to think undistracted is really important. But yours might be meeting with clients, right? That's what you do all day. Uh, one thing you can do if you have deep work, that is a part where you've got to work on your business, not in your business. Most of us have that. Just schedule a day a week with no meetings. I never book meetings on Tuesday or Wednesday or all your meetings stop at 3 or... That kind of thing, because again, I could. Oh, here's another tip: if you really become a student of yourself, you probably have an ideal work week, and that ideal work week 
probably includes a minimum and maximum number of meetings. So my number is 15. If I have more than 15 commitments in a week, my world starts to fall apart. And by that, I mean appointments, interviews, yeah. that kind of thing. If I have lower than 12, I start to get very um, bored. Mm -hmm. Then I'm like, what am I, unemployed? Like, come on, give me something yeah. to do here. So 12 to 15. Now, that's idiosyncratic. That applies to me. But you probably have a number where it's like, I probably have a cap of 20 clients a week or 15 clients a week that I can really serve well face-to-face. Because -face. otherwise, you're phoning it in or giving yeah. substandard advice. So try to become a student of yourself and figure out what that number might be. And uh, that then just when, you're, when you've got 12 appointments for the week, you're full. Even though you may have a lot of white space on the calendar, you need that for other things planning, preparing, whatever, strategy. Sure. I, I, I was doing some coaching for a financial advisor years ago, and they, um, they felt busy. They were having about six or seven meetings a week, uh, but they were scattered all over the place. You know, sure. some, one was Monday morning, and one was you know, on Tuesday evening, all the way into Saturday. And I, and I said, why are you working the other four days? And they said, what do you mean? I said, you can do all of this on Monday. <laughs> and then just, and I, you know, and I was being, trying to, trying to get their attention, but, but really being serious with it, that if you get into gear, if you make that decision to focus on that key activity, you can actually be more productive. Totally. You can actually gain energy uh, and find that you can be more productive. I, I made a decision uh, years ago uh, happenstance. I was at a, a, had to go to a conference, then I was going to be back for about three days, and then I was going to go to another conference after that. And so I was going to be out for these uh, two weeks. Uh, there's back in the office for about three days, bookended by a week on either side of the, at these conference. I said, why am I coming back for this? So I just blocked out the whole three weeks. And we had to prepare for it. To be to be out because you know if you're if you're out for a few days you come back to a lot of emails a lot of phone messages a lot of to do's uh, a lot of stuff in the inbox you know from mail that came in and so we arranged okay here's you know you're gonna do this you're gonna do that you're gonna answer the phones you're gonna you know respond to all these emails and what I came back to after being gone for three weeks was not a stack of things I had to go through not a stack of emails I came back to nothing. Because it was, it had to be addressed. If I was gone for a day or two, that message waited till I got back. Now I'm gone mm -hmm. for three weeks, and it, it's not waiting. And what happened was the business got stronger, and so I said, I'm making a decision to do that every year. And so now it's part of the ongoing schedule, and it really that decision. When it grew over time. Yeah. Well, yeah. now it's two months. Yeah. yeah. But it, it grew over time, but the business became stronger as a result of that decision to purposefully be away from the, the, the business for a bit. So it was really helpful for me. When you go through and think about in your role as a, as a, as a leadership expert, mm -hmm. What advice would you have for other people entering that, or other leadership experts? I mean, you're, you're really good at podcasting. You're really good at, at uh, content creation. For people who want to do that, what, what decision-making advice would you have for them? I would say if you're trying to figure out what to do, like it, it is difficult to give myself a bio these days because what do I do? Like I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a 
pastor anymore. So I write books, I podcast, I speak to audiences like I will this week in Dallas. Um, what is that? I don't know. But here's, here's how I got there. What I would say is if you struggled with a problem, chances are other people struggled with that same problem. So being a graduate of a good law school, good seminary, nobody taught me how to run a law firm. Nobody taught me how to manage a practice. Nobody taught me how to run a church. Nobody taught me how to really do evangelism, any of that. So I kind of know, okay, there's a lot of people in the field, you know, those fields who, who need help. And I needed help. I turned to books. I turned to, you know, conferences and mentors who built into me. So where are the gaps in your field? And if you're interested in that, how can you help fill those gaps for other people? So when I started writing on my blog, seriously, about nine years ago, I just thought, what did I have to struggle with? Oh, well, here's what I learned. And then I started publishing articles, and then, you know, hundreds of thousands of people showed up to read those articles. Similarly with podcasting, these were just really good conversations about things that I was curious about in the leadership space. And, you know, here we are seven years in at 19 million downloads. Extremely grateful for that. So if you have a problem, just try to figure out, empathize with your audience. Don't make it about yourself, but make it about them, that I'm here today to help Sean. I'm here today to help Sanger. I'm here, I'm showing up to help my client. I'm showing up to help other people who are struggling with the same issues that I am. So if you're a real estate agent, it's like, you know, you sell houses every day or every week. Yeah. Most people sell their house two or three times in their life. Like, it's a big deal. I haven't sold or bought a house in 12 years. So I don't know the first thing about real estate. Help me out with that. What do I need to do for curb appeal? What is staging a house? How does that work, you know? If you can help me with that, I'm probably going to trust you as my real estate agent. If you can't, you know, I am a car guy. Well, what's a better way to wax a car? How do you get the stain out of the carpet? Like, help me with that stuff. If you're a car salesman, you know, if you can come alongside your client and help them with the little things, because they're only picking up a new car, you know, every few years, or in your case, Sanger, once a decade, right, whenever, whenever it breaks, right? But maybe you don't want to drive around with um, stains all over the carpet and you're like, well, I could get this detailed or I could do it myself on a Saturday. Uh, just try to, to try to help people with basic things. We had, we had a great conversation at lunch. We both have big green eggs. Yeah. 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 I mean, right. We talked all about how to do a brisket. schooling me on how to do this because I've cooked on it twice. Yeah. And I, Kerry mentioned that he had it and, and uh, I was like, oh, you know, I've used it a couple of times. So, you know, what do you like about it? And he starts mentioning all these gadgets and attachments. I have no idea. He's like, well, you have this thing? I'm like, no. And he's like, all right, you got to get this. He's writing down things for me. All right, you got to buy this thing. I upsold you on all this no, stuff, and I don't even get a commission. I like $300 of big ring egg equipment now after my discussion. People say to me, why don't you do that? I'm like, this is a hobby. This is pure fun for me. It's a passion project. If I got paid for it, it wouldn't be fun anymore. Yeah. But, you know, we all got a niche. You all know something about life or leadership that other people don't know. Just be generous in sharing that information. 99% of what I give away is free. And uh, the 1% that's paid covers everything else. So, you know, we're very fortunate. We found a business model that works. We found a way just to help people. And uh, we're excited about helping them even more into the future. That's awesome. How do people find your podcast and 
I have a very easy to spell and remember name, Carrie Newhoff. Nobody can ever spell it or remember it. It's C-A-R-E-Y-N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F. If you even come close, Google will help you get there. CarrieNewhoff.com. Uh, you can, it's a Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. And uh, we'd love to connect with you there. We also have an email. We were talking about that today. We send out to about 85,000 leaders, just a short daily nugget. And you can get that at kerryneuhoff.com slash email. Right. And the new book? The new book is called At Your Best. It's about how to get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. Uh, get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, indie bookshops, anywhere you would get your book, At Your Best. Um, and you can go to atyourbesttoday.com. That's actually easy to remember. Atyourbesttoday.com. We even have a short course that you can take with it as well. So we love to serve leaders there. <laughs> So Sean and Carrie just left the building. I think Sean's driving Carrie to his next speaking event. I don't want to leave without sharing my takeaways. My biggest takeaway from talking to Carrie is his outlook on categorical categorical decision making. You know, I noticed that my life started to get easier and easier when I started to implement some of these categorical decisions unwittingly. And I'm really excited to see where I can take things, where I can take my efficiency, my productivity, my happiness, my fulfillment, by incorporating more of it more purposefully. You know, limiting the number of decisions I have to make about things that maybe are or are not important. If I figured out a wardrobe that works, let me just stick to that. If I figured out a time in my calendar that's not effective for client meetings, um, then let me just block it off. If I've figured out that I need to be doing a certain thing at a certain time, let me just stick to it. Um, I think there's so much wisdom there. I hope you feel the same way. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Singer Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast was produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.